And so I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9 and um, invite you to open your hearts and your spirits and your minds to hear God's word as I read. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has, he been, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. God's word is an amazing thing. It's so powerful. It can be confusing. It can be hard to deal with <laughs> this passage too, right? There's a lot of things in it. Um, it can be intimidating, but I really truly believe that ultimately it, all, it is also very powerful. Um, for those of you that don't know, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, get the opportunity today to continue on in the series in the book of Mark that we go through. And Last week, you heard from Grant, and he talked about uh, the story of the transfiguration and being on top of this mountain and these crazy events as well. I was like, Grant, thanks for scheduling me the week after you, because that was a tough one. Um, and all these things that happened, and he, he made it an analogy to an actual mountaintop experience, right? So we see this happen. We see this mountaintop experience, and towards the end of that passage, Grant, uh, the people started walking down the mountain. And in this passage today, we're going to get to, uh, we're going to follow them and continue on, and they get to a different part of the mountain. And, and to go along with the analogy, I'm saying that they're getting to the tree line. And for those of you that don't know, haven't seen like really big mountains, really tall mountains have a line that trees can't grow past, right? So when you get down, when you get past that, there's rocks, there's shrubs, but no trees. So right now, they're going to get down into the tree line. I'm going to explain and unpack 
what that means through this passage. But I want to give us some, some clarity and maybe a couple of focus points. There's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, there is someone who is uh, possessed by a demon. And that doesn't happen often, so it can be kind of distracting for us, right? We don't have uh, real-time experience for a lot of us in experiencing something like that. Uh, The other thing is that this passage uh, lends itself to really having a feel of this being a roadmap for healing, right? Like, here's here's the system. If you want something to get done, you do this and this and this, and it equals this. And I think when we, it's not that there isn't information in here that go along with that, But when we limit the passage to those understandings, I think we miss a lot of what's going on in this passage and a lot of what's happening. As far as the demon possession goes, I truly believe that this possession in here is an analogy or is pretty much a physical manifestation of what sin does, right? Because sin and this demon have the same end goal. And so in the same way that we read scripture, we follow the book of Mark and we want to know more about Jesus and what he is about and where he goes. In this passage, we get to know a little bit about the enemy. What's the goal? What's going on? How does it work? And so I think there's a lot of value if we dig in and lean into that time. Uh, John read the passage, so I'm not gonna read it all the way through again, but we're gonna jump right in. uh, And we're gonna start in chapter nine, starting in verse 14. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So again, as I said before, we have this situation, this opening part of the passage where, where they're stepping down into uh, the tree line. And what's happening is Jesus just had this amazing experience with, with a specific group of the disciples, right? Not all of them, just this tight group of the disciples. And he goes down and from that mountaintop experience, he's dealing with just the minutia of life. People arguing and bickering and frustrated about something, and he steps right into it. And what this does is it reminds me of how quick we do that, how quick we fall back into the realities that we experience every day. I was on a missions trip uh, in San Francisco, and this was part of a service trip that we went on. And we would just go to different places, little service projects and stuff like that. And one of the places that we went was the street called Ellison Taylor. And it was a corner in San Francisco. And that corner finds itself... One block, if you go one block one direction, you're in Union Square. You go one block the other direction, you are in uh, the Tenderloin. So it's this space right in between one of the most affluent, rich, expensive places in all the world. And one block the other way, you go to the most, one of the most impoverished, impoverished places in all of America where in one square mile, there's 35,000 people experiencing homelessness. And so this person, when I, was at, when I was in college, I had this friend and her dad in that city decided to start a church there. And this is, the church didn't have a building. It didn't have doors. It didn't have a denomination. It didn't have anything. It had a corner and a man who said, there's a need here. So some services where he brought in a bunch of people to cut hair. That was it. I imagine there was some prayer. Sometimes the services were, were him preaching a sermon. Sometimes it was feeding a meal. Sometimes when it got colder, it was a drive to give out some stuff. But this is what church looked like there. So we went there and we met with my friend's mom because her, her dad had since passed away. 
and she told us about this ministry, and I had 15 to 20 students, and she brought this six-foot table and some information for, um, uh, for people who are experiencing tough times, resources they can have. So there's pamphlets. And it's funny how you can fit 15 to 20 high schoolers behind a six-foot table. It was like their barrier from the rest of it. They were all like, yeah, I'm going to stay back here. There was a table and a fence. And, and within about an hour and a half of being there, I looked around, and no one was behind the table. There was a circle of kids sitting with this guy telling a story. I'm pretty sure none of it was true because there was some weird stuff happening. Like, and they're all laughing and like having a great time. And then there's this circle of people praying with this woman who is on a knee crying and then there's little conversations happening everywhere. And we had a couple students. It was their goal to give some of these like really rich people that were wearing fancy suits one of our sandwiches we brought. They were trying so hard. I don't know why. That was their goal. But in that time, in about an hour and a half, they went from hiding behind this table to literally doing God's work. And the reason I bring that up is they had nothing to give. We're talking sophomores going into junior year. They weren't taught, they weren't schooled, they didn't really have anything to give, but God worked in them and through them in that moment. And after that, we gave them a break and we walked the block to Union Square, because it's a cool place if you've ever been there, it's real nice to walk around. And it was time to go. And one of the students I heard getting pretty upset and they were pretty mad about something. And the thing they were mad about is they didn't get their chance to get their Frappuccino. So they were very upset that they didn't get a chance to have that coffee. And what it made me realize is how quick our perspective changes. How we just spent this mountaintop experience serving people. I saw that student praying with this woman who was older than her. I don't even know what her story was. And, and then now it's like, yeah, but my coffee. I don't get to spend $7 on a coffee as we walk back into the tent. You know, that's just a real. And we want to say, like, this isn't to shame that student, but it's to draw a line to us because I think all of us do that pretty quickly, right? All of us lose perspective. And what part of this passage does is it brings us back into that. These people get excited when Jesus comes down. And as I was doing studying, there's some people think there was still some of the glow, right? From the transfiguration. It's like, whoa, what's going on over there? It's different, you know? So there could be that. But also people are finding out what Jesus is about, right? These stories are traveling. This guy can do some stuff. So, so I want to see him. I want to learn. I want to bring my people who need help to him. And, and this really like kind of struck a chord in my heart. And Grant said something before where he feels when he goes through a passage that it cuts him first. That when he's really working through a passage, like it, it really should cut your heart when you're processing it. And this is one of those spots for me because it, it invoked a question in me. And the question was this. Am I in awe of what Jesus does or who Jesus is? Because if I were to be forced, hey, explain Jesus, chances are I would give a, a progression of things that Jesus did, most of which I have benefited from. And that's not bad, the gospel's in that message, right? There's good things in that. But when I'm in awe of Jesus, is it of what he can do or who he is? Not that he can do these things, but he is Lord, he is God, he is good. Simply to be in his presence is a blessing. And I, and I think that's one of those perspective pieces as we go through this passage. He goes on uh, to say in verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit, <clears throat> for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams it and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, 
and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So we have this man, and one of the things with this passage that's really interesting is this is the point of the story. That the point of it was this man needed help for his son, and he came, and now this is a peripheral situation, right? Because the point now is the disciples couldn't do it. And that was ammo for the scribes. And now there's debate over authority and who's right and how it works and, and why they couldn't or why they should be able to. And, and this guy's just, yeah, we couldn't figure it out, dude. You're good. Just sit over there. And, and so he kind of gets cast aside. And he tells the story and he tells what's happening to his son. And, and, and Jesus seeks that out from him. He says that the disciples couldn't cast it out. And we'll get to this in a second, what the difference was. But we see this response of Jesus. And the response of Jesus is somewhat harsh. And I'm going to be honest with you. Whenever I'm doing studying for preaching and Jesus says something harsh, I kind of try to fix it. Like, I'm like, oh, it's probably, we just didn't read the real text right, you know, because Jesus, yeah, like it's, you know, in the Greek, it'll fix it. We'll just figure it out. So, um, so I try to do that. I know I'm a little bit of an optimist, so I try it. But I did that, and I couldn't fix it, so I'm sorry. Jesus was being harsh, right? And there's debate as to who, right? He wasn't saying, like, was he saying this to the disciples specifically or the scribes who were unbelieving or even to the man who, uh, who his son didn't, wasn't healed? And what most of the consensus is that, you know what? He's probably speaking to everyone in earshot. Everyone that was there, that he's talking, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? The thing that Jesus knows that other people don't is he has a limited amount of time. And that time is limited that he's going to be in the flesh with them. But he says, not only how long am I going to be with you, but how long am I going to bear with you? Now, here's one thing when you look at the totality of scripture, I don't think Jesus was over it. I don't think he was like, peace, guys, I want to go home. I'm done bearing with this stuff that's going on. But this invoked another one of my favorite passages that I share with you guys all the time, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That there's something unique in the Christian faith. There's something unique in a community that is based around Christ. And that thing that is unique is the opportunity and the command to bear with one another. That if we say we want to be about what Jesus is about, this is what Jesus is about. And there's importance there that bearing with it wasn't just this obligation that Jesus begrudgingly did, but he's saying, I'm not going to always be on your shoulder right here. Like you aren't going to be able to physically see me. It's going to be different. And so he says these tough things. And he asked that the, that the child get brought to him. And this next part is really where the crux of the story is, where, the, where a lot of the meat is. In verse 20, it says, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. It convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And we have this crazy scene and there's a couple things I want to pull out of this. I want to slow down at this part of the passage because what happens is I think of this like in a picture, if it was a movie and Jesus was in focus or, or in the spotlight and, and there was a little bit of the front row you could see and the further back you go in the crowd, the darker it got, right? And the, the less in focus it is. 
And right now you have this kid, and as the kid's coming into focus, as he's stepping into the wash of the light that is on Jesus for the play purposes, right? As he steps into that, that the demon takes over and starts convulsing him on the ground. And what this is saying is that when sin is brought into light, it is, it is scary. It is terrifying. It is ugly. It is appalling. And we see that in a physical manifestation form in front of Jesus, what's happening. And here's the problem, that we know this. As follower of Jesus, we know this. And the problem is, is that it causes us and forces us to never want that to be seen, if we're honest with ourselves. And I think the reason that it does that is we don't view sin simply as, oh, this bad thing that happened or these bad choices that I made, but we start identifying with those choices. We start identifying with that which grips us and that which we have a hard time getting past. And so it's not I'm bringing my, my bad choices to light. It's I'm bringing myself so I'm appalling and I'm disgusting and I'm terrifying and we don't want to do that and we don't want to deal with that. And it's scary. And in this part, I forgot to give the warning. In this part, it's going to be a little bit heavy for a second. And we're going to get through it. But I think that there's a lot um, of importance in how this is happening and how this is going about. That, the, that it convulsed on the ground and it was writhing back and forth. And the next thing that it says is that it would at times cast his son into the fire or cast his son into the water. And there's something very intentional that's happening that this demon in the same way sin is trying to destroy. It's trying to destroy by casting him into the fire. And here's the unique thing is that sin is very comfortable and very confident in being dormant for a while. One of the things that struck me about this passage is sin doesn't have to be the center of attention. Sin doesn't have to be prideful. It's not me, me, me. It's like, I'm cool with you not knowing I'm here. Go ahead, you're fine. Go about your day. And it's hidden in that way. And that's what makes it terrifying that we see this. But sin is trying to destroy. And we see in the story, it's trying to destroy this boy. But I think there's something more than just that. And we actually have to go back to the very very beginning of scripture. In Genesis chapter one, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That there is an attack, there is something that's trying to be destroyed and intentionally being sought out by the enemy but we miss it when we just think it's us. What the enemy's trying to destroy is actually the image of God that is within us. Because it says here that God created things and it was good, right? The, the trees, the mountains, the birds, the, all this stuff is a reflection of his beauty and his glory and his creativity, but only one thing bears his image. Only one thing bears his likeness and that is humanity. And that is what at stake. That's what the battleground is for. If there is this battle and this war for something, it's not even simply you. It's the image of God in you because the enemy knows that that revealed changes everything. And we see this. What is the demon doing? Silencing the boy, right? causing him to be mute. It's not just silencing the boy. It's silencing the voice of God. The enemy in the same way is trying to destroy us. 
at the right time, at the proper time, at the perfect time, throwing us into the fire, throwing us into the water, but being completely fine, being dormant in the in-between time. And we see this, and it looks pretty bleak because I think when we think through this and we try to um, put it into our life or life that we see around us, we see this a lot. But it goes on, and it goes on to say, oops, sorry, it's wrong spot. And it says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. This is the man talking. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. But if you can do anything. What I love about this passage is no doubtedly this man has spent his life trying to help his son. Went to everything he could do. And finally, there's this man and this group of people that are said to have the power of God behind them. And he brings his son to these people who have the power of God and they failed him. Probably his last hope, right? This thing like finally there is something that's an answer and, and it failed. So when he's confronted with Jesus, I think it makes a lot of sense that there's some trepidation in what he's requesting, right? It, if you can. But Jesus focuses us here and he clarifies something. He says, if I can, what he's saying is, what's at stake here? What's in question here is not my capability, but it's you understanding who I am and who you are in light of that. That it's a posture that's at stake here. It's not whether Jesus can. It's not actually uh, an equation that if you do these right things, I will be freed to heal you now. But he's focusing on us on what it is that is important. And the father says something. It says that he cries out and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And as I was reading this, I might be wrong, but I think for me, these might be some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture that are spoken not by Jesus. Because he says, I believe, right? I believe, but there's a limit to that. The world has told me that so much against to it, so much to the contrary. And what this is saying is like, I believe, I've, maybe I've even experienced God and the mountaintop experience, so I know you're there, but I'm in the trees, man. I look around and there's a thicket over here and a briar over here and a sheer cliff and roots that are waiting to trip me the time I take the next step. I believe, but it only goes so far. And the cool thing about this passage is this seems to be sufficient to Jesus. It's not being perfect, right? It's not having perfect faith and belief. And that's what tells me this isn't an equation. And the reason, and this is what was hard. I was like, this doesn't make sense. It's not logical. And that frustrates me when I'm doing research. And what I realized is that Jesus didn't need him to believe enough. Jesus needed him to understand that he can only take it so far. And this is faith. This is where our faith comes in, that we can believe with everything we have within us, but it only takes us so far that at some point God intervenes, the spirit intervenes. God needs, we need to trust in who he, right? There's a, there's a limit, there's a gap that we have there. And because he understood that, because he called that out, because he brought his real self to Jesus, Jesus is like, yes, yes, this is it. 
And when Jesus saw the crowd uh, come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never come in again. We see this progression of going through this passage, and we're going to kind of talk about uh, uh, the actual physical progression of Jesus in a second. But it seemed like this man who was at the end of his rope, who questioned Jesus right off in his, in, when he went to Jesus, and then didn't give Jesus the full, I believe and I trust you. You're right in front of me. He said, yeah, I believe as much as I can. Help where I can't. And Jesus' response was to cast that demon out of his son. And this next part is where it continues to get a little bit hard and a little bit dark. And it, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy and the boy was like a corpse so that most said he is dead. And I wanna pause in this moment. I wanna pause in this narrative because I think a lot of the times we know the end of the story and when we read scripture, we're like, yeah, this is tough, but Jesus resurrects, guys, it's okay, right? Or we, or we go to the end of so we're like, yeah, I understand, but this is happening. In this moment, this man is experiencing the possibility of Jesus addressing the demon, but the demon t- like leaving the body and taking his son's life with it. That this, this boy could be dead now. And I imagine there's, there's anger, there's frustration, there's fear, there's, there's maybe relief that your son is no longer dealing with this. Whatever it is in this moment, that's what it could be. And the reason that I pause us is because we live in a broken and fallen world. And it's not always Disney at the end. That sin is destructive, destructive to death. Now, now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. It's gonna get better from here. But, but uh, right now in this moment, it doesn't always get that way. And I wanna say that because it feels really, the tendency is to say, if I just believe enough, this will be healed. If I just believe enough, this problem won't happen. And that's not true. It's not an equation, but there still is hope. The next verse, it says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. And there's a lot of correlation here. There's a lot as you do study to, to the death and resurrection of Jesus that's coming and all those things that, that happen. And what this is saying is that something is dying here. That there was a death. There was a death of that which uh, the boy was enslaved to. And the death precedes new life. And we see sin in this situation. And I think we equate it like this because a lot of the times when we view sin, we kind of view it along lines of making a good choice or making a bad choice, right? And when we view sin in that way, um, and sometimes it is that, sometimes you're making a good choice or bad choice. But if we simply view sin in that way, what we're ultimately saying is we have the power to deal with sin. Just sometimes we make bad choices. And that's not the case. Sin is pervasive because again, it's not going after you. The enemy would be completely fine if you felt morally superior your whole life and did really good things as long as you aren't reflecting the glory of God. The enemy's good with that. He wins. And that's what sin, that's why sin is more. Sin shows itself in things like addiction and these things that take our life. And, and when it's removed, right, like an alcoholic who, who is struggling with that can't just stop drinking. If they do, they die. Their body is so reliant on that. 
that you can't just pull it out because you will, you will die. And I think of that, and I think of that's not a ch- simple choice to be made, right? It's not as simple as stop or go. And I think of another example of, I don't think that um, sin is as simple as a mother saying, you know what? Getting high again is worth me not having my kids anymore. But the end result of that in my life, in my experience, is that's what happened. I know my mother, and I know there's 0% of the time that she would ever say anything was worth losing her kids. But the reality is it happened. Because sin takes over, because sin's more than a choice. Sin isn't you just willing yourself to be a better person or to do a good thing. It redefines who you are and it enslaves you. And if we don't call it out for what it is, we will never have the patience for those people who are struggling to do the hard work of being redeemed by God. We'll never have the patience and grace for ourselves to do the hard work of saying, this is hard. I can't do this myself. I need help. I need to go to God. I need to go to other people. We won't have the grace and patience to do that if we don't understand it's more than a choice. And as we wrap up with this last part of the verse, um, this last verses, it says, and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Later manuscripts and stuff add in fasting. So some translations you have might have that prayer and fasting, but we know prayer is in there. And what Jesus is saying, there's the tricky thing. I guarantee the disciples prayed for, to, to have the demon come out of the child. And when you read this passage, Jesus didn't pray. He just commanded the demon to leave, right? So we aren't just saying if you pray enough, if you figure it out, if you have the right equation, you're good. What he's saying is that this is only dealt with when you properly posture yourself before God. Because one of the things that's been impactful in me is when I realize prayer is posturing. That prayer isn't just a request, but it's coming before God. That it's pointless to ask for a request if you think that that person can't do anything, right? But it's you saying, God, you are good. You are glorious. You, you, are, you know me. You care for me. So I'm coming to you. And, and, and that's what prayer is. It's posturing yourself before God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That it's not about you. It's not about even the authority that I gave you. It's about you proclaiming the fact that God is bigger than all this. And you understanding that, that that's the place. That's the place that you hold And as we wrap up, I don't know where you are in this mountain. I hope you're not in the valley, the deep valley. And if you are, please listen to the next few seconds. My guess and assumption is you're not on the mountaintop because statistically, Lindsay loves when I say that because she's like, where are you getting your statistics? But I'm pretty confident on this one. Statistically, a very small portion of the world is on top of a mountain. So chances are you might not be on the mountaintop experience, which that leaves most of us in the trees. Most of us dealing with the realities and the pain and the distraction of everyday life. But as I said, we're gonna uh, follow Jesus through what he did. He came off the mountain. He didn't consider his disciples. He didn't engage the group of people that ran up to him that were really impressed with him being Jesus. He didn't engage the dispute that was going on that the scribes wanted to have with him 
He didn't even engage when, when this boy was writhing on the ground. He didn't even consider that, but he went directly to the father and he didn't give an answer. He didn't teach. He didn't fix everything. The first thing that he did was ask him his story. And I want to encourage you with this, wherever you are on that mountain analogy that we've been using, that Jesus isn't distracted by what you're doing, your, your church attendance, your, your spiritual discipline list and where you're at on it, that the groups of people that you follow, the thoughts that you have, he's not even distracted by the appalling, disgusting, writhing sin of your life that's failing in front of him. But he sees you and he hears you. And the reason that's important because hopefully in that situation, you might believe and you might start to be able to accept that he loves you. And I believe if we're a church that follows our mission statement and we wanna follow Jesus, love people and do good, that if we're following Jesus and what he's about is not being distracted by all the craziness that's going on, the sin, the decisions you make, the things you do that's good, the things that you do that's bad, but sees the person and takes the time and pauses enough to hear their story so that that person might be able to experience some of the unconditional love of God that is both in us and meant to be poured out and through us. And I think that's the mission that we're on. And as, as daunting as all the rest of this is, that's exciting because it's not on our shoulders. We don't get our act together before we do that.